season three of the Telly award-winning podcast coming at you like the Miller family of beers buy that man some Grant Navaloni nothing but the best will do buy that man some writer's block pod the best come shining through it tastes great it's less filling and it now has zero carbohydrates it's the champagne of podcasts the writer's block very nice uh, <laughs> I am uh Riley Grant uh, screenwriter, Ringo, award-winning creator of fine comics like Aberrant, Banjax, Suicide Jockeys, and now Fa Shung Origins, The Other Voice in the Dark, The Man in the Box to the Left is... David Avaloni, uh, screenwriter, film guy, comic book writer, sore throat haver. Sword throat haver. Uh, if you missed any of our previous conversations, uh, episodes featuring comic luminaries like David F. Walker, Matt Fraction, uh, Kevin Eastman, Rodney Barnes, and many, many more, our entire catalog can be celebrated via YouTube, uh, iTunes, and other purveyors of worthwhile ear cracks. So double on back and check it out. Uh, great show um, today. I'm excited to get into it, but uh, we have news. Um, uh, <laughs> so was it uh, two two episodes ago, we announced that we had won a communicator award. Uh, since then, uh, we have won a telly award uh, for series excellence. The communicator award uh, was for uh, best episode. Um, it was uh, our uh, comics and uh, politics uh uh, episode featuring uh, Emily Flake and Lalo Elkarez. This is for the whole shebang. They're saying, nice. great series, guys. Have a telly. Uh, how are you feeling about that, Evelyn? Well, I think we should say uh, multi-award winning. <laughs> yeah. The not, aw awards, not, awards winning? Awards winning. Yeah. yeah. Is, uh, it, I, is, is two multi or do we need to win another one before two, we win multi? Two, more than one is multi. It's multi. Okay. More, multi. Than, more than one is multi. I Multiple. Think yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we. I don't know if we could say we've won a few awards. That's. It's always two is a couple, three you can start saying a few. Yeah. And well, many is in our future, but we, you know, we haven't gotten a many yet. But yeah, uh, yeah, no, that's very exciting. You're, you're so good at running this stuff down. I am. I have always been terrible at it. So yep. that's. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, I, you know, it's. Uh, I mean, I'm just putting it in front of people, you know, yeah. and, and and they're liking what they're they're hearing and seeing. So, uh, so thanks to Telly and thanks to uh, the communicator folks and um, yeah, more to more to come. Hopefully, uh, anything to plug before we get into it. Uh, in comic shops for the last week has been Elvira in Horrorland number one. Uh, it's uh, my latest Elvira series. It'll be a five issue miniseries in which Elvira finds herself stuck in the pocket dimensions of various legendary horror movies. The uh, first issue, she runs into a psycho hotel manager. In the second issue, she finds herself chased around another hotel by an overactor with an ax. And in the third issue, she is deeply alienated, which uh, I just started seeing the uh, the art on, and it's pretty, pretty amazing. Nice. It's art by Sylvia Califano. I want to call out Sylvia, who just does a an astonishing job. Uh, there's a panel. I saw a page from the alien issue and she did a panel where Elvira is explaining to the crew of the Nostromo what's going to happen to them. And Sylvia drew a Pac-Man screen behind her with a xenomorph head chomping Tom Skerritt's and it's very, very funny. Nice. Um, anyway, that's, uh, that's what I got and go to your comic book store. And if they don't have it, tell them to order it and pick up the whole series. Rock and roll. Yeah, uh, yeah. On my side, uh, the Fashang Origins uh, uh, Kickstarter just ended. 
Uh, it is a, uh, a wuxia kung fu epic from the fine folks at Immortal Studios that I was uh, lucky enough to uh, get the chance to write. Um, highly recommended. Uh, if you go to my um, my social media at Ryland Grant, uh, you will find some uh, backer kit info on that if you missed it. So uh, check that out. Maybe Very nice. maybe the best thing I've written. But uh, how did it, how did it do? How did it uh, how did it come out? Uh, I it, it, I mean it, it did well. I mean, you know, it, yeah, it, it, it funded. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> totally funded. Uh, did well. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy. Um, so excited to get it into people's hands and excited to get it into more people's hands. So, uh, sp speaking of Kickstarters, uh, yeah. why, don't, why don't we bring our guests on? Yes. Welcome Eddie D'Angelini. Good morning. Howdy, Good morning, howdy. Eddie. Tell the kids you. a little bit about yourself, Eddie. Uh, tell me a little bit about myself. I am the writer, artist, cartoonist of the comic strip collectors, which is, as my wife describes it, about a comic book collector who loves his wife and his comic book collection, but not always in that order. <laughs> nice. And currently, I am doing a Kickstarter for a the first trade paperback for collectors since issues one, two, and three. And each of the issues I do as yearly annuals. It's a weekly webcomic. At the end of the year, I compile all of those weekly webcomics into an annual along with new material that was never online. So the first three annuals... I realized last year are completely sold out. I got a few orders in online on my website only to find out, oh my goodness, I don't have these anymore. So um, I am doing a Kickstarter currently that is a trade paperback that collects the first three annuals all in one big 200 page book. And you can find it at collectorsonkickstarter.com. And along with that, uh, for those who don't know, I am also the co-owner of the historic comic book shop, Heidi Ho Comics in Santa Monica, California. And a coffee lover. Nice. Yes. We are, we are co coffee achievers here on the writer's block. <laughs> Especially when we record at 10 in the morning, when we record a little later, grandpa likes to have a martini, but uh, this, this is not one of those uh, 10 AM fresh off an airplane coffee. <laughs> coffee is uh, my friend. It's five o'clock somewhere. Yeah. Right. Exactly. It's happy hour somewhere. So Eddie, you know, as I, as I said, when we were talking in the green room, uh, so much, I, I have to imagine that most of our listenership is people who are either doing stuff like this for a living or wish they were, or want to know how it's done. So when we have someone new on, I'm always kind of curious about the origin story and what, you know, were you a comics fan when you were a kid and how did you end up being a cartoonist and a comic book shop owner? Well, yeah, I grew up loving comics. Uh, this was back in the seventies uh, and eighties. Sure. sure. So uh, I had a dad who, every time I was homesick from school, uh, he would always stop at the local liquor store and grab a few comics off the rack and bring them home, and that just started my almost lifelong love with comic books in my that 20s. Is a, that is fantastic parenting. I just want to jump in and say, <laughs> yeah. that is some goddamn yeah. fantastic. My father was a novelist and he would get invited to various, like what were pop culture conventions in the seventies. They weren't really, they weren't always called comic book conventions, but he would generally come home with a stack for me of, Oh, I thought you'd like these. And that's a, yeah. I'm yeah. in favor of that parenting style. Yeah. And in fact, uh, in my fourth annual, I actually tell the, the quick story about how my dad did that and how when I actually started showing an interest in drawing, 
he would bring home all kinds of pencils, pens, uh, paper, everything from work, uh, everything for me, all the art supplies I would ever want uh, to draw. And I'm sure it was all stuff he stole from the offices, but we'll <laughs> forgive him for that now. But he didn't quite really understand why I love comics. He just knew I did. So he just kept me supplied with art supplies and comics when I was a kid. And then when I got into my 20s, I kind of discovered uh, punk rock, motorcycles, girls, and kind of fell out of comics. And it wasn't until later, I think in my almost like mid-late 30s, I discovered them again and realized how much I love these. And it just started the whole collecting bug all over again. I think and it's not there, unnatural to to dip in and out of reading, yeah. collecting comic. I mean, I'm I'm on my fourth dipping in and out and, you know, yeah. When I got my first gig writing comic books, I wasn't actually reading them that. I had to really bone up because everyone asked the question, what are you reading now? And I'd be like, uh, <laughs> my own stuff from 30 <laughs> years ago. Is that a bad answer to give? So I should. Start yeah. 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 So from there, I started just collecting and loving comics again. And that uh, at the time, I was doing something completely different from what I'm doing now. I was actually uh, doing graphic design and web design. And my local comic shop at the time uh, around here, I, I went in there and said, your website stinks. I'll redesign it for store credit. And that just started a relationship doing that, which yep. led into running their eBay store, which led into the owner of that shop coming to me and saying, Hey, Heidi Ho Comics in Santa Monica, and this was about eight, nine years ago. Heidi Ho Comics in Santa Monica is for sale. Are you interested in going in with me on it? And led to owning a comic book shop. But before that happened, but one or two years before that happened, I got the bug to be creative again because I had not been drawing for a long time either and thought, well, I want to kind of just do my own thing as well because I started going back to comic book conventions. And I was just very jealous of all the creators that I would go to meet who were on the other side of the table. And I thought, mm -hmm. man, I want to be on that side of the table. So uh, I came up with this idea of the comic strip that I'm doing now, which was just loosely based on my wife, my marriage and my love and geekiness for comics. And at the time I did, I wasn't drawing it. I was just writing out gags weekly, you know, just one and done gags like um, like the newspaper Sunday funnies type of comic strips. And I didn't know what I was going to do as far as maybe finding an artist. And I thought, well, I used to draw when I was a kid. So why don't I just give it a try? And I realized, well, you know, I'm good enough at this point to at least tell a decent joke with it. So I started doing it and started putting it up on social media. And it just started getting a really good response because this was before all the Facebook algorithm algorithms went into place and you could actually get an audience. Yeah. So um, it built up from there. And I just, as time went on, I got better at the writing. I got better, much better at, at the, the drawing, the cartooning. I'm not going to be illustrating. Uh, I'm not going to be penciling amazing Spider-Man anytime soon, but I'm, I think I'm pretty good at what I'm doing, which is that kind of humor newspaper style comic strip. And I see myself getting better. So um just went on from there and i've been doing this comic strip now as a weekly web comic and now six print volumes it's it's amazing 10 years as yeah. of this april it's been 10 years and it's a it, it's a great book let me highly recommend it i mean it's um it's good to um you know it's kind of a 
for the comic community by a member of the comic community book. I mean, that that's what excites me about it. And, you know, it's, um, I mean, you, you don't have to be a, a creator to really dig it. Um, I mean, I think that's a big reason why I dig it. But, you know, again, if you are just a, when I say the community, it's, um, it's you know, fans, it's uh, con goers, it, it is creators, it, it's the whole nine yards, but also- And their wives. And, well, and, and or significant well, others. Well, I mean, yeah, really, yeah, husband, yeah, I mean, well, yeah, what I was going to say is it's also this really, like, nice relationship play. Um, yeah. which, which I think we can all relate to, you know, um, uh, if, if you, if you have a significant other, um, uh, whether you like comic books or not, uh, you're, you're going to love this thing. And, um, I, 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 I think it's great. I, I backed a couple of the Kickstarters. I'm a huge fan. So. A connection, a connection that occurs to me when you talk about the relative quality of your drawing, I think there's a connection in the minds of the audience. Audiences dig sincerity and they dig, if if people cared about how Bob Dylan sang, he would still be in coffee shops or he would be dead. Uh, and he certainly would not be a millionaire. Um, I think if as a whole, you're presenting something that is 100% you, the art doesn't have to be photorealism. And the, you know, it, it's a, there's, there's something about cartooning that lends itself to honesty. Some of the best cartoons that I love deeply are not particularly well drawn, but that's not their, that is not what, you know, people have made a lot of impact with stick figures. Yeah. If they are used correctly, if the, if the gags are funny, if the, if the thing has heart and sincerity. So I think it's a, the cartoonist is very much like the singer songwriter in that way. They may not be the greatest guitar player in the world, or they may not be the greatest singer in the world. But if the whole package is, I am seeing an artist be real with me and be entertaining. They don't. They don't give a shit about how you know how well, how detailed the line work is. You know but, that's. But, yeah, but, 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 yeah, but I mean the best French cuisine. You know, give me yeah. a give me a chicken, give me an onion, and uh, you know, give me a, a couple of cloves of garlic. Yeah, yeah. world world class dish. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I I would I would you know I not to not not to insult someone with a zillion fans, but I could read Charles Schultz all day long and look at his work even in the and towards the end of his life when the line work got a little shaky. I can stand to look at Todd McFarlane for about four pages before I'm exhausted and I got to put the book down <laughs> and lie down for a minute and have a glass of wine and maybe come back to it because I'm just. Action fatigue. Leave, leave me the hell alone, yeah. man. You're bugging yeah. me with all those lines. Uh, so you know, it's 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 all it's all a matter of taste, obviously. And uh, bringing it back to music, I remember uh, back in the '80s, Billy Idol did an interview about what music he likes to listen to, and he said uh, Robert Plant can sing, uh, Mick Jagger can't sing. Who do I listen to? Mick Jagger, because he can't sing and he sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's, uh, I definitely disagree with it. Robert Plant can sing in a context that I do not enjoy singing. Uh, <laughs> that, is, that is not a, that is not a, uh, I mean, I suppose when you, when you connect a, a, a mob informant to, uh, to an electric chair, the sound they make, <laughs> uh, that would be called singing technically nice. uh, and a benefit to society. But I have never been able to listen to Robert Plant for more than a couple of seconds. Uh, but Mick Jagger, and, and yeah. I don't, I don't want to disparage anyone else, but I have my issues with Led Zeppelin as a whole. Yeah, uh, given yeah. the amount that they've stolen, literally directly oh, from yeah. blues musicians. 
the 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 music stealing, the child trafficking. There's a there's a lot to there's a lot to dig into with le- the lyrics that sound like a twelve year old who's read too much Tolkien. There's a lot going on there, but uh, you know they have their fans and God bless them. But uh, point being though, you, what he's right about in that case is yeah, the perfect technical achievement is not always you know can be sterile and cold. And yeah, he's right, Mick Jagger cannot you know frank sinatra's range is not that great and i actually think part of the giant appeal of sinatra aside from the absolute charisma and force with which he delivers a song is that the average person in their car along can kind of sing along without going oh that i can't hit that high note that's you know tony bennett can sometimes hit a note where you're like i'm just gonna back away while I'm singing along and let this happen. But Sinatra, you can kind of croak out along along with him and not feel too bad about yourself. And I think that's a that's animated a lot of uh of popular things. This doesn't alienate me. You know, I'm not listening yeah. to Ema Sumac with her eight octave range and going, I don't even know what the hell I'm hearing. You know, yeah. uh but yeah, it's there's a lot to be I learned that lesson even as a I used to do uh burlesque emceeing every once in a while and uh I have a, a performer named Toby Huss, really, who's in his way, <laughs> one of the world great Sinatra impersonators. But the Dean Martin thing of like how you put it over is more important necessarily than what you're putting over and how perfectly you're putting it over. I discovered that if you walk on stage with a drink in your hand and when you screw up instead of turning white and panicking, you laugh along with the audience they will forgive you everything. Yeah. <laughs> they will yeah. they will go with you on that journey because they're like, oh, look at the drunk guy having, having a laugh on stage. Yeah, well, I mean, it's the guiding principle of this podcast, right? Yeah. Uh, this podcast <laughs> is one, one big catastrophic fuck up. Uh, but, yeah. uh, Don't okay. ask me what's in this cup. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we, 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 we have a good time doing it. But yeah, so you, you got into uh, Heidi Ho eight, nine years ago? It, yeah, it's been, I think, about nine years now. I think it was started in, oh, goodness, 2000, towards the end of 2014, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. I, I don't know where the time went. It seems like it was just a year or two ago, but it's, yeah. It's almost yeah, that's 10 years about ago. when I started writing comics, and it's that funny thing that, you know, you get used to saying, I'm new at this. And no. you even get, I think you even get used to saying things like, I've been doing it about five years. Yeah, yeah. Go, yeah, about five years, you know, since 2014. And people look at you like, no, that's that's eight years ago, actually. Yep. Yeah, no, no. I, yeah. My, my, my standard con intro is, you know, for, you know, for 12 years, I've been a working screenwriter in Hollywood and blah, 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 blah. And it might maybe even been you, Avaloni. At some point, somebody who was on one of my panels leaned over and yeah. said, <laughs> said you, you know, you've been saying that for about three or four years. Right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. it's, it's time to increment those numbers up. Yeah, one, thing, yeah. one thing I was curious about looking at your uh, your more recent work on the on the kickstarter um i'm just curious do you use digital tools when you draw or do do you do anything uh in the do you you work with pens in the real world yeah uh i actually have the equipment to work digitally um another cartoonist friend of mine who upgraded his equipment gave me his older uh wacom tablet which is a little older but he says it works great it's a workhorse it's you know, everything that you'll need. And it has been sitting in the back of my closet for the past two years. And partly for a number of reasons. One, my wife and I live in a smaller one bedroom house. 
so I don't fully have the setup for this giant thing. Right. Because it's an older model that's pretty large. If I do it, it'll take up my entire drawing table. So uh, that along with the fact that there's going to be a learning curve. And, you know, sometimes I'm just I'm so busy trying to keep up my weekly output of my comic strip, let alone doing my other stuff with the shop. I think, where am I going to have the time to, like, actually sit down and learn this yep. uh, without interrupting my schedule for everything else? So it's just been put off. And I'm not opposed to working digitally because I know in my mind, I think, well, once I get it, I can work much quicker and get more done or just have more free time. But I've yep. never made that jump. And yeah. there's something about the tactile feeling of actually drawing something with pencil and inking it by hand. Plus, having all of those original 11 by 17 comic strips that I do every week make for great Kickstarter rewards. Yeah. yeah. And it's a really popular tier. It's always a popular one every time I do a Kickstarter. So I would hate to give that up. Yeah. yeah I, have, I have artists that I've worked with that I would have bought original art for them from them if it existed, <laughs> but it yeah, literally, yeah. they're like this, this was only ever ones and zeros. It was never in the real world. And I've worked with artists who use a variety of tools who do like digital layouts and then print out the layouts and ink over them in hand yeah. and vice versa. People go, you know, they do a, they, they sketch with a pencil, scan it in, and then digitally refine it. Like, there's a lot of ways to do it, sure. uh, particularly now. But I totally understand that. I when I was a professional film editor when Final Cut Pro 7 point whatever jumped up to 10 and became a completely different platform. And I was like, I'd love to learn how to do this. But if I learn how to do this while trying to deliver work for a client, I am going to be very very late with my homework and i can't yeah, exactly i yeah. can't i can't afford to you know knock a week out of my life to get fa as fast as this as i am on the old thing mm -hmm. yeah. and premier pro is very needy and will let you uh will transform itself into something very close to old final cut pro so i jumped to that instead over yeah. time well i'm i'm very much of the opinion of i don't care what tools you use or how you use them all that matters is the end product is the end product good because mm -hmm. you can have all of the latest equipment and software top of the line most expensive everything but if you don't have the fundamentals of your art style or of good writing then what does it matter and at the same time if someone is just a fabulous artist and just has just so much on the ball as far as writing goes and just understands the concept of storytelling and how to write well and they're doing it with crayons they're still going to be a million times better than that guy that's got the top of the line equipment yeah no i i exaggeration my, i'm not going to buy something that's done in crayons but you know what i mean i mean yeah i look at uh emile ferris who i would love to get on this show she follows me on twitter and i'm almost too from too intimidated to ping her but, you know, she made the choice to do like a 200-page graphic novel memoir. I mean, it's clearly fictional, but there's got to be something real going on there. In ballpoint pen on lined loose-leaf notebook paper. Right. And right. the balls, forgive the sexual metaphor, the balls to go, I'm going to do this incredibly complicated, beautiful art on lined loose leaf notebook paper because i think it's a cool aesthetic and it's how i drew in high school and junior high i i am in awe of that like imagine painting 
you know, the Mona Lisa on post-it notes, you know, like it's, it's, uh, and going, no, but this is cool. Cause when I was at work, I doodled on post-it notes. So that's, I'm going to do my story entirely on post-it notes. That's, you know, it's, uh, that there, there is no wrong way to do it. I mean, I, my, my wife always points out that, you know, as we, as we enter the world of 8k TVs, we're seeing a lot of movies that people are making on cell phones. You know, like yeah. the, the the tool is the tool is not the the thing. The tool is just the end a, product. Yeah, is what matters. Yeah, no, absolutely. Have you got yeah. anything coming up at uh, Heidi Ho that anyone at home should know about? Any signings or anything? Actually, we do. In June, on June twenty fifth, we are doing a kind of a small event, a uh, small Comic Con, um, that we are calling Pride Con. We have a lot of, uh, I have a lot of creator friends and a lot of customers as well that um, are LGBTQ and we want to showcase uh, a lot of the creators that I know that do that type of work specifically for that audience. So we're going to be doing that on the 25th and it's called PrideCon. And we've got, uh, I think about a dozen guests, creators so far that are going to be there showing their works. And uh, yeah, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. We did it once before, before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Never had a chance to do it again until yeah. now. Can you name drop any of the creators you have coming? Uh, let's see. We've got uh, a good friend of mine, Jack Foster, who um, does the comic series Gun. Uh, we have Prism Comics, uh, people from Prism Comics. And then, um, excuse my, I think I mispronounced, Prism, not Prison. Uh, I, as far as I know, none of them have done time. <laughs> and my wife has been putting together the guest list for the rest of it. So I'm afraid at this point in time, I don't have uh, the names of people who have confirmed at this point. Sure. So, yeah, well, I, have, I have some good suggestions for you if you want them. <laughs> oh, sure. We'll talk um, after. Several people who have been multiple time guests on this show would be really terrific for that. Um, sure. So I, I won't say their names on air, but I'll. I'll, uh, I'll, I can send you some names and contact info if you're looking for more folks. Cause that's a, uh, you know, and again, you think about how much the culture has changed. The idea of any of the comic book shops I was in, in the eighties, having an event like that is it's unthinkable, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's just something that was not in the spotlight. Anybody who, um, was LGBTQ uh, in the industry pretty much kept it to themselves. It was not something that they talked about. And um, they went on doing, you know, probably the work from the big two that didn't reflect who they were or what they thought. And we live in a time now where thanks to really, I don't know, uh, thanks to the Internet, uh, thanks to just easier ways of self-publishing, people can go ahead and put their work out there that is representative of them. And that's great. Yeah. You know, and yeah. frankly, I'm doing the same thing, too. I'm doing a comic strip that is representative of me, uh, my likes and my life. And just so happened to have also uh, just kind of connected with a lot of other people that are like me as far as, you know, uh, married or have a significant other and, and just love comics and have to live with somebody who's not in that hobby and they have to deal with it. So, well, we've uh, really opened up. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about that a lot on the show. It's like the gift of Kickstarter, right? Is that, um, I mean, you don't yeah. you no longer have to wait for one of the five gatekeepers to give you permission to do your book, right? You, yes. you do it, you take it directly to consumer, and um, you will find people who want that sort of book. It's it, it's that's the other side of the coin, right? Is that uh, you know for years, I mean, 
depending on who you were, you, you walked into a comic shop, you didn't see yourself on the rack, right? Um, yeah. You know, now whatever you are looking for, you're going to find 10 of those on, on Kickstarter. And, and that's incredible. And then it is amazing to see it trickle down to events like you're talking about, where it's like, okay, well, you know, there are, there are all these people who are interested in the same thing. Let's get them together in a room and let's have a big party, right? Let's, let's, yeah. have, a, let's have a celebration of this content. There's stuff that I don't know about yet. Let me, let me go there. And, you know, I know that this one creator I love uh, is going to be there. Oh, wow, there, there are 10 more. <laughs> let me meet yeah. them. Let me buy their stuff. Let me champion their stuff. Let me recommend it to a friend. Um, it's really, um, it's amazing how this, this community, how this business is mutating right now. And, um, and we're, we're, we're really at the beginning of it. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm really excited to see where we end up five, 10 years, 20 years down the line, yeah. uh, the landscape's going to look, you know, completely different. And it, it's, um, not, not every shop is adapting. Not every shop is becoming part of, the 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 evolution the progress and it's great to see shops like yours do that and and that's the sense i get from heidi ho i mean again i'm, I'm in los angeles but i'm i'm in eagle rock so we might as well be on on different planets <laughs> I, don't, I don't i don't get down as as much as i i would like to um but whenever i'm in santa monica i try to pop in um but it's one of the great shops you know um, you. um uh there's always something going on and um you know, it's, it's, it's another thing that, that we hit on here is that the idea of the, the, the comic shop is a community center, right? You're, you're not just a retailer. You are a community center. You are a cultural center. Um, uh, and that, that is you, you celebrate fandom and, uh, and you know, you, you, you promote people who are doing interesting things and challenging things socially and politically and all of those things. And it's just exciting to see. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. I, that's really the um, mindset that my wife and I went into when we uh, became co-owners of the spot. And uh, regardless of how my my comic strip plays out, my wife actually has become a bit of a comic book fan herself. She works in the shop uh, with me as well. When we bought it, she was she kind of uh, retired from her. Um, current line of work and decided she wanted to do something a little less stressful and what's less stressful than owning a retail business <laughs> anyway um, she kind of went in with me and one of the things that we really stressed when we bought the place is that we want to make it a fun and safe place for everybody and we really adopted the motto of comic books are for everyone and that shop used to be it very much had that man cave reputation and feel to it when we took it over where all the regulars, almost all the regulars were all guys like me. And we never saw kids in the shop. If once in a while, if a woman did come in, she was basically there because she wanted to get a gift for her husband or boyfriend. And you could tell the whole time she's there, she just felt extremely uncomfortable. And we really worked hard to change all of that. And we now we have a pretty good mix of male, female, kids, who come into the shop and even our pull customers are pretty much kind of even, you know, women and men. So we've really, really championed that idea for sure. Yeah. It's a, you know, there's this, there's this myth, this mythology about, you know, enforced diversity and enforce it's like, no, it was the lack of diversity that was being strongly enforced, not the other way around. Like I had, I had, you know, I had a lot of nerd friends in the 70s, obviously, and in the 80s. And it's not like none of them were girls, none of them were women. 
but they didn't feel comfortable at shops. They didn't feel comfortable at conventions. So they simply didn't attend. They were still there. They were, you know, those science fiction conventions I went to in the late seventies and the early eighties, you know, I knew dozens of girls in high school who were, you know, reading Arthur C. Clarke and Robert Heinlein and Ray Bradbury, but they didn't want to go to that. Convention. They didn't want to, they didn't want to be with those dudes in that room. They felt uncomfortable about it. They didn't want to go to a comic book shop with me because it was an uncomfortable experience for them and they would be made fun of and they would be. And I don't, I don't blame them when they are getting, you know, hit on and harassed constantly places like that. That's just completely unacceptable. Yeah. And I think um, what changed for us was when my, my, my wife came in to run the shop with me, if a woman would walk into to the entrance of the shop and kind of peek in and they see a woman behind the counter and the woman behind the counter is like, you know, saying, hello, how you doing? Whatever, greeting them. There's just suddenly like just ah, a bit of relief. And then they they come in, they, they'll talk to my wife or they'll um, we hired another female uh, employee and would automatically talk to them and open up saying, yeah, I really love this stuff. I saw the movies. I really want to read more. And what can you recommend? And they get, you know, they're talking to someone that they see that is just like them and they get excited about it and they end up having kind of a, a different idea of what it is to be a comic book reader and a comic book fan. You know, it's not just the, the, you know, creepy old, you know, middle-aged guys anymore. It's, it's all of us. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, it always strikes you when you see a first that you go, Oh my God, is it a dark ages that this is still a first I've been watching baseball my whole life. Uh, I love the three guys that do the SNY, the the Mets games on SN at, on MLB.tv. They're great guys. They're lovely guys. They're very smart. They're very funny. But they had a game that was on Apple TV a few weeks ago. And two out of the three commentators were women. And I said, I have never heard a woman do color commentary on a baseball game in my entire life of watching baseball. How fucking crazy is that, that in 2022, for the first time, I heard a woman say, you know, uh, Scherzer is stepping up to the mound, wind up, you know, like, that is, there is nothing sexual about doing that. There is nothing sex, and I've known female baseball fans my entire life. Not, a, not an unusual thing. It's not, a, it's not an outlier. But it's just an example of you go like, my God, this is the first time I'm hearing this. And that's that's just fucking crazy. And uh, it just shows you how broken the system is. Though, uh, there's another aspect with comic books where there's a built-in, uh, there's a built-in a problem with how the material itself mm. of the, when you're on issue 1052 of the Fantastic Four, it is very hard for someone to walk in the door and I say, I'm going to pick up issue 1053 and see how it goes. And I don't know anyone and I don't understand it. And, you know, in the 70s and 80s, it was bad writing. But Stan Lee made damn sure that on every page, you know, golly, Professor Xavier, why are we landing on Muir Island? Well, Banshee, whose voice can destroy the world, you know, like, you know, every now that's Black Bolt. But anyway. Everyone spoke in the most hilariously expository dialogue because, and I think Jim Shooter was also on board with this. You had to have the idea that you could walk in, pick up an issue and nothing would be surprising. You'd be able to understand everything that was going on. And it led to some astonishingly bad dialogue, 
but at least there was that. And now you're jumping into a continuity. I love there's a, a website that exists. I can't remember that actually tracks the beginning of new arcs <laughs> that literally tracks every comic book and says, Hey, you know, Batman 753 actually begins a new arc with a new villain and a new storyline. So if you've never read a Batman comic, you could actually just dive in here and at least it's the beginning of a story. Mm-hmm. You know, at least you're not in the last, at least you're not coming in at the second <clears throat> act curtain of a three act play. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that that alone is that is a very valuable resource for readers. I only discovered it because I, you know, Dynamite is addicted to number ones. They won't let me have an issue 10 of anything. So uh, every time I have an issue number one, I end up on that. Hey, it's a new arc of Elvira. (laughs) Yes, yes, it is. It's also a number one, which kind of tells you that you bring up an issue that is there's so much more to it than uh, just that. Yeah, there's that idea of, you know, you got the movies coming out, you got the potential to bring in a lot of new readers into the shop. But if a series like, you know, you've got like detective comics or action comics that are over a thousand, or you got like all these other issues that are other titles that are so many issues in, how do you get people to come in and start? And then now what they're doing, they're trying to correct that. Uh, At least Marvel is. Marvel is doing it head on where they are basically rebooting series continuously, almost like every year. So every year a series will start off with a new number one. Mm -hmm. And I think they've went way too far the other way now because people come in and they say, Hey, I just saw the new Dr. Strange movie. I want to read Dr. Strange. I want to start with number one. And we got to say, yeah, which number one? Because there's like a dozen of them, but I get what they're trying to do to try to bring in new readers. But I think, at least for us at the shop, we almost always recommend the perennial one-and-done titles of particular characters. Like, we made a list for our uh, staff at the store. For each character that someone comes in and wants to start reading, here's like three or four trade paperbacks that we should always have in stock that are a great place for that person to start. They've never read comics. They like the character. They want a one and done story. They don't want to have something that they've got to come back every week and continue to keep buying. And if they read this and they like it, perhaps they'll come back and start trying more and they'll get more into the character to where they start slowly being um, slowly get introduced to the continuity of it and get, you know, into it slowly rather than have it all dumped on their head. And then they're completely confused and they don't know what's going on. And they just say, ah, forget it. And they don't start anywhere. No, I think so. That's a that's a great it's a great idea to have that list. I mean, I was evangelizing for uh I think the the studios missed an enormous opportunity. I think everyone that walked out of Infinity War should have been faced with a kiosk with a bunch of Jim Starlin trade paperbacks on it. You know? Yeah. You wanna wanna yeah. read Cosmic Odyssey? That's that's pretty close. You wanna read uh, Jim Starlin's Infinity Gauntlet? It's right here. It's not going to satisfy you with the cliffhanger you just got because it's a completely different story, really. But it's that that flavor you just decided that you fucking love and you can't get yeah. enough of. Here's that yeah. flavor in 150 pages. You know Exactly. And it's a one and done story. Yep. So they can buy that, read it and go, oh, it's not the same as, as the movie, but there's all the same characters and it's all kind of almost the same kind of story. And I get to read it from beginning to end. Yeah. And I get to put it down and say, wow, that was a great story. But yeah. then, you know, the next day they think, well, I want more. Okay, you know what? 
there was also the next uh, trade paperback. You can get uh, Infinity War or you yep. can continue on with some of these other things. Or yep. did you like that particular character in Infinity Gauntlet? Well, how about this one and done story? And then it goes from there. They slowly yeah. uh, get stuck in that web of, you know, reading the stuff. And then they wake up one morning and go, oh, my God, I'm a comic book geek. Yeah. How did yeah. this happen? And they wake up one morning and they ask themselves, but what's Captain America up to today? Yeah. And you have your monthly reader, you know? Exactly. Yeah. You know, I used to say I would dip into superhero comics. Like if I liked a character, I'd dip in a couple of times a year. Like I was reading my hometown newspaper. Yeah. Man and Lois are married now. They have a couple of kids. How great for them. Yeah. Yeah. I don't need next month. I just wanted to know what they were up to these days. Yeah. 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 You have enough of, you have enough of a base, you know, the character backwards and forwards so you can just drop in. It's like, it's, you know, you're, you're, you're watching season three, episode 12 of the Rockford files. I, I, I know Jim. Oh, you know, you know, angels up to no good again. Let's, let's see where this goes. Um, and it's very satisfying. It's a very satisfying little nugget. But 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 I think Eddie, what you're hitting on is you know the sort of great power and responsibility that a comic shop owner has. And I think that um, I mean I think most of us who create comics, we are here because of guys and gals like you. You know, I mean I um, I was one of the rubes that, like you guys. I fell in and out of comics, but but what really hooked me, I was one of the rubes that was pulled into a a, a, a comic shop for the death of Superman. Right. I mean, there were, there were, there were millions of us. Right. And, um, and that got me in the door, but there was a great clerk or clerks at, at a, a shop called comics corner, uh, right outside of Detroit, Michigan. And, um, and he's like, Oh, you like that? You know, he's like, yeah, you know, set that aside for a minute. You're, you're really going to like this. You're really going to like that. And the image revolution was happening and vertigo was starting. And, uh, uh, after that, and he's taking me to the, the back issue bins and like showing me when, you know, uh, Marvel made Iron Man an alcoholic in the seventies. You're going to love this. And, and, and show me what, what comics could be. It wasn't just people punching each other. Um, there were these great character dramas, right? Uh, they, they, they were explorations of the human condition, um and that was really formative not just um i mean the reason i became a screenwriter is because of you know those those days those years i spent in those comic shops and and with with guys like you being like hey here's great story here's great human drama here's what you know here's what a comic could and should be um and i brought that with me you know it's still it's still sitting here in my bag of of inspiration um and I think that's cool. You know, I mean, you guys are, you guys are fighting this, this war for, uh, for great story and for humanity and in media. Uh, you guys are on the front lines of it. And I think that's a, a really interesting place to be. And, and, and good, what, oh, go ahead. I'm oh, sorry. Okay. Thank you. And what's interesting is the way people are coming in now, uh, as opposed to that example you gave of when you came in, uh, our people are not, Become, coming in and turning into the Wednesday Warriors, the guys that come every week to grab the new issues off the wall. In fact, uh, I and I can only speak for my shop, that Wednesday, Wednesday Warrior kind of uh, idea is kind of waning. Mm. It's been on the downside for a while now. And instead, we've got the readers that are coming in that they want more than just a single issue. They're like, you know, they come in, they want to start reading, they want to get a trade paperback. They want to get something that's more complete. And so we get a lot of people that are coming in mostly for that. 
they are they're more readers than they are the speculators and collectors. Uh, we still have those too, but we got the people that are coming in, picking up the trade paperbacks, and then you know months later they come back and they get the next volume of whatever it is they're reading, or they pick up something else, uh, a different character in trade paperback, and those people aren't always superhero fans. Uh, these are people that are realizing that, wow, there are compelling stories being told in comic form that are far and above, uh, completely different from, you know, the Marvel DC superhero stuff, you know, stuff like March and Mouse and all those type of books that people realize, wow, there's some real good stuff here. Not, not certainly not knocking superhero stories, but there's so much more than just that. And they're coming in as strictly readers. And they're not the people that are coming in and buying the, the comics off of the shelf every Wednesday. And we, you know, those people still exist. But that as like the main source of your buyers and readership has really, at least for us, really dropped. And instead, the trade paperback market has boomed. Right. So a good, good example of that is um, uh, Paper Girls when that series came out. We had tons of people. I mean, we were selling through those first few issues like crazy. We had to constantly reorder. We were going through them so fast. We had to hit up all the other comic shops in the area and say, you know, sell me all your copies. And number one, sell me all your copies. And number two, because we couldn't keep up with the demand. As soon as the first trade paperback came out, these uh, sales for the single issues of Paper Girls went straight off a cliff. And the, the trade paperback sales for paper girls since just mm -hmm. shot way up. So, I mean, that tells me that yeah. a large amount of the people that we have coming into our shop, the buyers are they're readers. Well, yeah. And, 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 and we're in a bitch culture, you know what I'm saying? We're, we're in a culture where, you know, Netflix drops the, uh, the new Ozark, you know, uh, 10 episodes at a time. And, you know, and some people yeah. sit down and watch it in a weekend. Right. And yeah. that's, that's, that's what they want to do with their comic shops, you know, exactly. and, it, yeah, and even I mean, we, uh, Avalonia and I experienced it. I mean, Avalonia has, has has expressed this any number of times where it's like, OK, well, he'll he'll buy he'll buy the, the first floppy to give it a test. And if he likes it, it may mean that he doesn't buy every floppy that he waits and pre-orders the, the trade paperback from his comic shop. Uh, you know, you sit down, you, you you read it in one sitting, and that's just that's just how we are. I mean, you, you look at what happened with the 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 previous season of The Boys, where it's like Amazon got cute, and they're like, oh, you know, actually, we're gonna we're gonna release this uh one episode a week, and people were furious, and they were yeah. so furious, they were so furious that they went on and they tanked the uh the star rating on the uh, on the show. If you go on, The Boys is still rated one star or whatever. Um, so entitled. Come yeah, on. Yeah. No. Completely. I mean, absolutely. It can only be people under a certain age because it's basically like, like Amazon invented network television and they got angry at it. You know? <laughs> yeah. 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 I remember as a kid, I had to wait a week to watch my favorite show and yeah. to watch it. I had to be in front of the TV on a certain day at a certain time. Otherwise I missed it. Yeah. <laughs> well, and if I wanted to see my favorite bond movie, I had to wait until that one Sunday night a year that ABC decided to show it. Yeah. Right now, I could pick up my phone and stream it <laughs> if I really, yeah. if I was desperate to watch it, or I could, you know, go to the box set over on the wall. But we don't have to talk about that. You know, I honestly, <laughs> these days, I buy floppies almost entirely to economically support uh, people I care about and projects I believe in and shops, and that's it. Yeah. Like I have a pull list. I 
you know, I have, I won't name names, but I have some series that I, I have 20 issues of something here that I haven't read one of because I want it to be as successful as humanly possible. Some Sunday afternoon, I will sit down and read my way through the 20 issues and it will be delightful. But it's also, there's so much out there now. We really don't, comics does not really have that water culture cult, that water cooler culture, unless it's Batman or Spider-Man or the X-Men. Like, no one's going to spoil Usagi Yojimbo for me on Twitter. No, it's not going to happen. Like, I'm not, I'm not worried about that. They might spoil the last Ronin if I look at the wrong thread. But I think I would have to dig pretty deep onto the internet to have the last Ronin spoiled for me. You know what I mean? It's, it's, yeah. not, it's just not the same thing. So, you know, and then there's stuff that I read, the stuff that I read for cultural literacy and to keep abreast of the industry, that's PDFs. That's, that's, that's comiXology. If I must know what's going on in Spider-Man this month, ugh, fine, I'll, I'll read a Spider-Man on, online. Uh, and you, but, but the books, the trade, pay, I'm a reader. It is a pain in the ass to go through a long box and pull out a bunch of floppies and read them as sure. an experience. And I'm not the kind of, I'm not interested in reselling them. So about once every three, four months, my local shop, I'm in Hollywood, is Golden Apple. Once every three, four months, I go to Golden Apple and essentially give them everything that I bought from them in the last three months in return for store credit and walk out with three trade paperbacks. And I am very happy about the whole entire system where I have bought the floppies I needed to to make sure that, you know, Dave Boer's uh, Killer Queens made enough money and, and sold. Uh, and I have them and I read them and they were great. And now they can have them back and I'll buy the trade when it comes out from Dave, probably at a convention. You know, so yeah. it's, yeah. it's uh, you know, we all develop our systems for how we work this stuff. But I just know that most of the stuff I care about, there is no pressing need. Like I'm going to go on Twitter tomorrow and someone will have spoiled killer queens for me. I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. You know, I do wonder about the effect in terms of comic sales. I love what Nerdist does, uh, Dan Casey does of, Every time there's most Marvel shows, they do a, here's everything you missed. Here's every Easter egg. Here's every comic book that's referenced in this show. Here's every arc that they are pulling from. I also love it because it gives the credit where credit is due. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I freeze frame just like every other pro, I'm sure, to see who's in the special thanks of an episode. And sometimes you see who's in the special thanks and you see, you know, Walt Simonson and you go, Oh, that was who I thought it was. Cause otherwise their Walt Simonson's name wouldn't be in the end. That minor character that Walt created, that must be who that was in that one scene. Um, but it's nice having the footnotes and it does tell you go back and go back and read this whole thing. It's pretty great. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the one thing that you mentioned that I think is maybe a slight flaw in the system that we have now, is that we're really relying on sales of single issues to determine whether or not it goes into trade paperback. And I think that's changing a bit, but I like to see it change more because like I said, I've got so many customers now, new customers that are coming in. They'll probably never come in on a Wednesday to buy new issues. They'll never dig through the back issue bins. They'll never spend $20, $30 on a really nice Silver Age or Bronze Age book. They will just come in and buy trade paperbacks because they just want to keep reading what they like and find new stuff to read. 
And those people are a pretty large force, I think, now, especially for my shop. So I'd like to see more consideration put towards that as far as how the market is run, because uh, it's a shame that some things may not get put into trade paperback because the single issues did not sell well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, and I, and, and it's sometimes they never come out and that's a terrible shame. And some, some, there, there were comics from the late seventies that I waited. I, I held my, my disintegrating floppies in my cold dead hands you know, I, there was one of my favorite runs of comics ever was the Mr. Miracle run after it was canceled, after Kirby ran it. And I'm pretty sure I can thank Tom King for them going, you know, this was kind of a, this is a Mr. Miracle run run written by Steve Englehart and Steve Gerber. People probably, people who read Mr. Miracle by Tom King would probably really dig this run. I mean, it's drawn by Marshall Rogers and, and Michael Golden. It's as good as, comics from that era get mm -hmm. uh but i literally had these you know six crumbling floppies that i've had since the late 70s and it finally came out you know 30 30 40 years later and that's uh you know on the you know certainly there's stuff that's collected where you go no one needs this but uh <laughs> yeah but I, I, I mean, I was just going to say, like, uh, Eddie, your, your your point is is well taken. And I think that a lot of the publishers are starting to really kind of examine that. You know, I mean, uh, a friend of the show, Charlie Stickney, who's the co-publisher at Scout Comics, um, with their entire kids line, I mean, they're kind of, um, they're taking a really interesting, careful approach to floppies. I mean, basically what they will do is for a series, they will release a floppy number one and and they'll stop there. You know, yeah. and, and floppy number one is an advertisement for the trade that's going to come out, you know, whatever it is, a month, two months, three months yeah. later, um, you know, because, I mean, attrition and all that stuff, you know, it's either you hook them with that first issue or not. Um, right. I mean, there's there's I mean, D.C. for a few years now has been threatening to, you know, eliminate the floppy business almost altogether. Right. It's like, OK, well, we're we're only going to do graphic novels now. Right. And, and there, there's a lot of talk. I mean, a lot of talk about that. I mean, I, I sat in an aftershock panel at um, at Baltimore Comic Con not too long ago, and they're they're talking about how they're they're, you know, taking a really hard look at building out their graphic novel business and and, and trying to make that a, a flagship part of what they're they're doing and, and trying to minimize floppies and that's where things are headed and all that stuff. And, um, it, it, you know, it is weird. I mean, we talk about how this business is evolving and changing and all that stuff. And, um, well, and, and lest we forget, this is, this model is as old as the printing press. Uh, Charles Dickens wrote a tale of two cities, 10 pages at a time. It was published in magazines. I mean, tale of two cities is a, is a week is a monthly comic basically. Uh, tale the novel is a, is essentially a trade paperback. It's you know there are no drawings, but it was released serialized, and it kind of reads that way a little bit. You do get a cliffhanger at the end of every chapter if if uh, Charlie is on his game, and uh, so the idea that this is a new thing and it's a, you know we're it's always constantly evolving. In some stories, I used to be more uh, of a snob about this, but you know the term graphic novel. Watchmen isn't a graphic novel. It is a trade paperback collection of a 12-issue maxi series that took a little while to come out. Dark Knight Returns is a four-issue DC miniseries that has been collected in a trade paperback. 
Mouse is a graphic novel, you know, but, and I'm not, I, I actually hate using that example because it's such an overexposed work in some ways, but you yeah. know, a contract with God, essentially the first thing anyone called a graphic novel by Eisner, that's a graphic novel where you sit down and you write an indeterminate number of pages that takes as long. If something's got a mini climax every 22 pages, it was never a graphic novel. It was a floppy that has been turned into a cultural artifact that we call a graphic novel. Uh, like I said, I'm, I'm less sniffy about it now when someone refers to Watchmen as their favorite graphic novel. I don't wince quite as hard as I used to, but uh, because it's, you know, it's, it's terminology, it's jargon. I know what they're saying and they know what they're saying. It's, it's what they say to let people know, Oh, I read literature, not comic books. Yeah. You know, so this is a graphic novel, not yeah. a comic book. And I would say That's the first fine, whatever, as long as you read it. It's all I matters. would say the first 12 issues of Chaikin's American Flag are as great a dystopian American novel as Watchmen and wildly underpraised uh, yeah. given their, you know, give, given that Howard invented Trumplography, which you can see every week on The Mandalorian, on, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi, on, on any number of things. I don't know if you're, for those who don't remember, there's a French expression, trompe l'oeil, which is a painting that looks like a landscape. You look at a brick wall and you think you're looking at the horizon. And in uh, American Flag, the main character is a, uh, a, a washed up actor. And what washed him up is the network had enough of him digitized that they did not need him for future episodes. And they just <laughs> computer generated him for all future episodes. Howard came up with that in what, 82, 83, something like that. And yeah, it was early mid eighties. Commonly accepted part of life that we're looking at 20, you know, 28 year old Mark Hamill uh, yeah. as if that's a thing that exists in this world. Yeah. Um, anyway, but, but, you know, but, very few people would call the collection of American flag one through 12, a graphic novel. Yeah. Paperback. Yeah. Speaking yeah. of, we are, uh, we are having holographic Tupac on the show next week. So yeah, exactly. Uh, Can we have holographic Alec Guinness? I would actually, I, I would prefer that. Yeah, yeah. I want them to deep fake Obi-Wan Kenobi with 50 year old Alec Guinness over Ewan McGregor's face. I think that would be really great. <laughs> I, just, I, I just want to see, you know, Alec Guinness from like Bridge Over the River Kwai era, Alec Guinness in Obi-Wan Kenobi would be fantastic. Neat little mustache. It would be great. But uh, but we're not. No, they might already be doing that for the series at some point if they're going to like, you know, uh, show a progression of time. Who knows? Well, I saw I actually saw we watched the first episode of the next season of uh, Stranger Things yesterday. And there's a five years earlier flashback or 10 years earlier flashback, seven years earlier flashback of 11. And I said, I think this is the first time that I've seen an 18 year old digitally be aged to look 12. Like that's a, that is a brand new, like this isn't like a 70 year old being digitally de-aged to be 28. This is a 19 year old girl being digitally de-aged to be prepubescent. And that is, you know, they Millie Bobby, you know, they took all that the horrible effect of age that we're seeing on Millie Bobby uh, <laughs> away so that she could look 11 again. And that's, that's some wild shit. Uh, yeah. But well, you know, I'm, also, goes, I'm not mad at it. It's, I think no. it's just funny. I mean, this goes back to what we were talking earlier, which is 
the tools you use aren't important. It's the end effect. And the end effect being that we have to show these characters only having progressed maybe a year or two at time in time where actually it's like what, five or six years. So we have to make them yeah. look like how they did at the time. Yeah. Uh, you know, back when they were younger. So it's just tools that they use to get an effect to make the outcome yeah. that they need. Oh to yeah. Get. And I'm not gonna, I find, I find CGI Peter Cushing in, uh, in Rogue One, utterly charming. I think that's a it's it's delightful that they brought him back to life for that. And look, if I can live with the shitty rear projection in every Hitchcock movie that I love, I I I can love with creepy, uncanny valley Peter Cushing a little bit in another good movie that I love. It's not uh, that's always my joke is like, you want to help me out with CGI? Take fix the bad reprojection rear projection in North by Northwest. That would be a gr great use of George Lucas's time. Right. Uh, in in semi retirement, you know, fix, we get rid of the get rid of the thick blue mat lines around Mary Poppins. Yeah. Can we do that for Julie? You know, that'd be yeah. great. Yeah, but yet now we have like the the best effects possible compared to all that stuff, and we still have these fanboys complaining. Yeah. Oh, it's not perfect. Oh, I can tell it's CGI. I can, you know. When we were kids, we didn't have any of this stuff. We had to just make do with the old Spider-Man and Hulk TV series, and that was it. You know, yeah. and that's a, and so, those old Spider-Men are that is that is a pretty hilarious show. Yeah, yeah but cool. you know what? They're fun and charming in a way. Oh yeah, I'll still watch them every once in a while and enjoy them. You know, yeah, it's bad, but it's it's, it's funny that it, this is a complete aside. But you know, it, I'm not the first one to make this observation. One of the better things about the MCU. I don't know if this comes from Feige or not, is the idea that very few of them are superhero movies, you know, exclamation point. Uh, Captain America is a World War II movie. Ant-Man is a heist comedy. Yeah. You know, Guardians of the Galaxy, I think Kevin Smith said, it's Star Wars, but everyone is Han Solo. Yeah, Winter Soldier is a 70s paranoid thriller. Yeah, and Robert Redford, in case you didn't know that, here's Robert Redford's fresh yeah. from you know, fre fresh from all the president's men and yeah, yeah. Condor to remind you what kind of movie you're watching. Yeah. I love casting like that. Yeah. But uh, the Hulk, the Incredible Hulk, faced with making that character a TV show character, what did they do? They took the format of The Fugitive, the most popular television show up to that point, and went, it's The Fugitive, but at the end of the episode, he or and also Kung Fu stole that format of the fugitive, the guy's wandering around. He's peaceful for 52 minutes, 53 minutes in someone pisses him off. You see some incredible martial arts shows over. The Hulk is just Kung Fu. And instead of Kung Fu, he turns green and throws a car at somebody like that's the, right. that's, that's the gag, but it's Bill Bixby, David Carradine, David Jansen for 45 minutes, being deeply interested in people's personal problems that he has just encountered in the, in the cold open. Uh, but that's the genius. What do you do with the Hulk? Well, let's make him the fugitive. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's a, that's a, I always try to think of that as a writer of like, what are the, what, are, what, what is an interesting archetype you can, you can attach this character to, you know? But anyway, that was, that just occurred to me when you mentioned the Hulk. I'm like, right. That was actually the Feige model as far back as nine, whenever that was 76, 77. Yeah, and anyone who does not shed a little tear at the end of every episode of the of the Incredible Hulk when they start playing that theme music at the end, so you're not yeah. human. Yeah, you're not human. 
Those, like, the, movie, yeah. the, movies, the movies need more of that, actually. It's like Long Road at the end of uh, Rambo. Yeah. First blood. I, in fact, I'm wondering now, have they ever maybe done like, like a little nod to that end theme music in any Hulk movie? I'm trying to think because, if I've ever heard it because I'm a film music yeah. nut and I do watch out for that stuff. Yeah, because I just finally saw the new Doctor Strange movie yesterday. And the part of the movie where uh, Patrick Stewart wheels in as Professor X, they have that little nod to the '90s cartoon music. Yeah, and he's in um, the and he's in the the wheelchair from the yeah. '90s cartoon to yeah. just come right out and tell you this is '90s cartoon Charles Xavier. This is exactly the universe from those cartoons, right. which I think is really this is the future of those cartoons, which I think is a really great. I love that. I'm a like I said, I'm a film music nerd, and I uh, I actually think one of the great pities is how few of these franchises really it's only star Wars, which is because it's one composer that you have to pay that has musical continuity. Yeah. The Top Gun Maverick was really good with it. I mean, really good. Sure. You know, I mean, they, they, they brought the, you know, I mean, they brought Walter Meyer's the, theme and all that. Well, yeah. I mean, but, 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 but also, I mean, the kick-ass pop music, you know, the Kenny Loggins is back in and all that stuff. And, and those are easy touchstones, but what they did with the standard Top Gun theme, and, mm -hmm. and just the music in general from the original movie and, you know, making it feel familiar, but making it feel now and yeah. making it feel of the particular moment in the drama was, was awesome. You know, I mean, yeah. it, it, it was a masterwork. And, and in fact, I think, you know, I mean, you know, Tom Cruise, obviously very, very controlling. I think he went in uh, and, and, you know, he fired a lot of the, uh, the, the people that were involved in the music uh, initially because he wasn't happy with it and brought in people who obviously yeah. like, elevated you know the levels on everything so i'm always kind of amazed when people don't lean into a musical legacy and i always wish i was in the room i love the star trek movies the shatner ones i but you got a new theme from star trek every three there are two that use the same theme the two scored by james horner and then next movie it's yet another theme from star trek and i always want to shake the producers by the shoulders and say the james bond theme yeah. is partially why people go to see those fucking movies. Yep. And they have leaned into the popularity. Like the James Bond theme makes making a trailer that will get you excited to see the next Bond movie. Yeah. Like falling, like I can't imagine an easier job than trailer editor for the next James Bond theme. You commission a new <laughs> cover of the James Bond theme and you cut together all the violence and the, the hot girl and the exotic locations in your, and I say this as a former trailer editor, I know what I'm talking about. So the, the fact that various franchises just never go like, yeah. let's just keep, let's just keep leaning on Alexander Courage's Star Trek stream from 1967 was really good. Oh, you don't like that one? You got the Jerry Goldsmith one from 79 that we've recycled a few thousand times, you know, but I wish they would actually, and this is my nerdiest thing, but like, in 1967, Fred Steiner wrote a Romulan theme that is used in a bunch of episodes. When I see a Romulan on Star Trek Picard, play me a little Fred Steiner. I'm, yeah. they, they actually did it in the first season of Discovery. And, you know, and it's that kind of thing where you go, now am I only hearing four notes of this because they don't want to pay Fred Steiner's widow? <laughs> but it, it, it has such a psychological impact you oh, know? Um, most psychological yeah. impact I mean, it, it, there is this thing i mean uh uh it, 
Eddie, I'm I'm a uh, I've been practicing Zen for 20 years, so you'll you'll you hang around with me long enough, you'll start to get a, a Zen comparisons and metaphors and all that. Um, but you know, basically, all it means is I you know I, I meditate a lot, and there is this thing that your body does when if you've meditated for a long time, you connect to your breath, and and your body immediately recognizes it. Right? It's like oh, we're doing this again. Let me relax. Let let the heart rate come down. All of that, uh, that's, uh, you know, let, let me shut down the, uh, the, the adrenal, uh, uh, you know, stressor uh, functions that were happening. Let's relax. Let's do all these things. All I have to do is connect with my breath. I've taught my body to do that. My body knows that, okay, when I come back to my breath, all of these other things are supposed to happen, right? And, and, and your, your body does that. It learns. And so what you're talking about, Epiloni, is like you hear that bond theme. And your, oh, yeah. your body recognizes it immediately and it goes to a happy place, right? Okay. Uh, and that, that was what happened in Top Gun. The, the, I, I'm not spoiling, spoiling anything here. Top Gun Maverick starts, you are, you are on the deck of an aircraft carrier. You got, you got airplanes taken off. You got airplanes landing and fucking danger zone kicks up. And you are immediately, <laughs> you are, you're, 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 the hair on the back of your neck stands up. You're fucking laughing. You're, you're 10 or 12 or 20 or however old you were back then when you saw the first one. Uh, whatever, when you watched it for the hundredth time, right? The, the original movie, you, you are back in and you are in 100% fucking immediately. And Star Trek has that. They have those anthems. You know what I'm saying? Like the, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm a next gen guy more than, you know, more than an original series guy, but I am a, a next gen fanatic. And you have that opening theme, but that opening theme, they used it magically for. Well, and they also, not for nothing, even the next gen theme, yeah. before it goes into the Jerry Goldsmith, you hear the Alexander Courage Enterprise fanfare yeah. from 1966. Yeah, you know yeah. the horns give you your dun dun dun, and then you then yeah. it's Gary Goldsmith. Yeah, and that was always the problem with the next gen movies is that it felt different. They never did that. You know, they, they wanted to be like, oh, this is its own thing, and it's cool. And look, we redesigned the ships, and and this this is not familiar. And it's it's like you know, I I want to all I have to hear is just the the. Do, do, do. you know yeah. just just, the, just just give me a little it's all i need to hear the, the the littlest hint of it and suddenly my body is like oh happy place and i'm all in on this and i yeah. love it and and, and and they refuse to do it. And when they refuse to do it, it's annoying. You know, like, yeah. like the, the 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 new Star Trek series, let's redesign the Klingons. Why? Why? Yeah. We One love more the time. Klingons. One yeah. more time. Why? Yeah, the the, yeah. the uh the I'm, I'm loving Strange New Worlds. And one of the things I'm loving ab about it, it is clearly designed and made by people who went, you like Star Trek 1966? We're going to give you some Star Trek 1966, you know, updated to the degree of the special effects and whatever, but it is the USS Enterprise. It is, you know, the musical theme is not exactly the same, but it, it references it heavily. And uh, that nostalgia thing, it does work. And it is about all art does is evoke emotions. And, you know, it's the same thing as when Tarantino needle drops some pop hit from the sixties to add some cool to the screen that may or may not already be there. Uh, you, the Paramount logo fades down and I hear Alexander Courage's horns and I'm, I'm ready. I'm there. And that's the, well, it, 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 it is absurd. Yeah. 
Well, it works both ways too, because yeah. like if I if I go out to the car and stuck in the middle of uh, you know uh, with you is playing on the fucking radio, I'm going to come back tonight and watch Reservoir Dogs. You know what yep. I'm saying? Like it, it it is this it is such a powerful tool and powerful connection. That's what Tarantino did. Tarantino used uh, uh, nostalgia and other media as kind of currency. Like this is cool, so my thing is cool, and you're going to enjoy it. Let's have a party. That's really what it is. You throw a good party at your house. You play some great fucking music right yeah. uh that's what he was always doing but, but but then also what he did was he made that the brand of his stuff and now there there are there are 30 amazing tunes that i cannot hear without yeah. without desperately needing to go back and revisit a tarantino movie well those things are all anchors i mean you know how to anchor your audience and they're all in no matter what you do and yeah. you know uh, a good no, creator and, uses those things yeah. uh in just the right way yeah, and in and in comics, it's a different kind of music. But when you know when someone in a Spider-Man property says, "With great power must also come great responsibility," it's that echo of the horns from the Enterprise fanfare. Yeah. When Captain America says, "I can do this all day," that's that's also music, and that's also an anchor. I will confess to the nerdiest thing in the world, and then we will wrap up the show, which is the talking about the James Bond theme and. Since I was a teenager, the first time I went out to drive on an actual highway on the New Jersey Turnpike, I made a tape cassette of James Bond car chase music to sort of focus my attention on what I was doing. I still listen to John Barry in the car so that I pay attention while I'm driving. Because, man, that music will make you, you know, like, I'm driving a car, serious shit is happening, man. Anything could happen, people can die. <laughs> Uh, so Eddie, tell the folks at home where they can find you out on the internet. It, your Kickstarter is currently running, correct? It's currently running as of today, right today. It is right at the two week mark. Great. And, uh, I hit the funding total this past weekend. So now we're just going for more so we can make it bigger and better. Hopefully give me more cushion, which is always, uh, always a good thing. So they can find my comic strip at collectorscomic.com. If you want to go, there's a link there on my website to the Kickstarter right there. But if you want to go straight to the Kickstarter, it's collectorsonkickstarter.com. One thing I'll mention that uh, I didn't mention on the first plug is that everybody who backs at any level, and I do this all the time and it's just a fun thing to do. Anyone who backs the Kickstarter on any level is going to be entered to win my personal copy of Wolverine number one, 9.8. Oh, wow. Yeah. So if that nice. doesn't incentivize you to jump on and back it, I don't know what will. But if you do back it, you're going to get a really fun book. You're going to get lots of great rewards that I always offer on my Kickstarters. So go to collectorsonkickstarter.com and check it out. And also, pitch. thank you for inviting me. I love talking comics. I love talking shop. I literally, in the words of Captain America, I could do this all day. <laughs> I, I warned you that we would end up in Star Trek land. So uh, we, we <laughs> somehow found, found a way to get there. So uh, I am uh, Rylan Grant at Rylan Grant on all forms of social media. That is R-Y-L-E-N-D-G-R-A-N-T. For those who are listening, uh, I have to spell it because it's not a real name. Uh, my parents drunkenly arranged letters and saddled me with it. So uh, now I have to spell it for you. But um, my uh, books, uh, the Ringo Award-winning Aberrant uh, and the four-time Ringo-nominated Banjax and uh, latest and greatest, uh, the Tokosatsu Romp Suicide Jockeys, 
uh, can be found and ordered at fine comic shops everywhere. Comic shops like Heidi Ho in uh, Santa Monica. Um, if we don't have a, have it, ask us to order it. Order that shit. Exactly. And uh, my uh, my Kickstarter books, the Astral Projection Thriller, The Jump, and the Fargo S Crime Drama, The Peacekeepers, uh, can be found via my Backerkit site. If you go to the jump2.backerkit.com, that's the jump one word and the number two, the jump2.backerkit.com. You'll find those there. You'll find signed copies of uh, Aberrant Banjax and Suicide Jockeys, Rare Con Variants, all that good stuff. It is a one-stop Rylan Grant shop. Uh, the Fa Sheng Origins uh, Kickstarter ended a few weeks back, um, but stay tuned to the social media for Backer Kit announcements if you missed out on it. You can still grab it. So, uh, yeah, take us home, Avalone. Uh, I can be found at uh, davidavalonefreelance.com. That will take you to all of the branching, the Twitters, the Instagrams, the et cetera's, and uh, in comic shops now, Elvira in Horrorland number one. Ask for it by name. Have it ordered if you can't find it. And that's it for this exciting, uh, heavily film music uh, right there at the end episode of, uh, I apologize for that. It's an obsession. Uh, episode of The Writer's Block. We will see you next week. Thanks for listening, guys. If you're watching us on YouTube, be sure to smash that like button. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or other fine purveyors of ear crack, please leave us a five-star review. And wherever you're watching and or listening, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. We'll see you back here next week for more madcap hijinks on The Writer's Block. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.